The word gate is derived in Old English from geat, G-E-A-T, which meant door, opening, passage, and barrier. It connotates that anything that is open can suddenly close. And when that gate closes, it becomes a limit, prohibiting one to ever see or potentially feel what is on the other side of that gate. Consider now what it's like to be an aspiring writer. The dream is of a gigantic opening where words flow from one's mind right to the page. But ask most aspiring writers, is that how it goes? And you're likely to hear, no, I'm feeling overwhelmed by the ideas in my head. I fear many things, including selling my idea. I fear the isolation that comes with writing, but most important, the fear of rejection and the internal critic that continues to tell me that I'm no good at this, thereby diminishing the capacity and ruining potentially the confidence that you had, which you're trying to so bestow in order to honor your dream. In other words, many feel trapped inside the proverbial gate. But what if you had someone to turn to, to open the gate? and to help you discover the endless possibilities that comes not with filling your mind necessarily, but with emptying it on the path to publishing that book. Suzanne Kingsbury is that gate opener, an award-winning author of two critically acclaimed novels, The Summer Fletcher Grill Loved Me and The Gospel According to Gracie, both translated widely abroad and optioned for film. Gateless writing a nationwide organization based on creative brain science and ancient Zen supports writers to the point of publication and beyond. That's what Suzanne does. She is a writing coach, author, therapist, craft master, publishing consulting, and brand builder. She is here to give aspiring writers the confidence, the resources, the know-how, and the connections to get you on track and to get you agent ready and potentially published. Her Gateless Writing Academy is an unprecedented approach to building writing careers that bust the myths of struggling writers and helps you to open up that gate. And it is my honor and a pleasure to welcome Suzanne Kingsbury. Welcome to A Climb to the Top. Chuck, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much. And I am so glad you're here. I want to start with this concept of the gate. And before we get into even your writing career and how it began, what I described in the opening, did I have that right? Is that the way that you were approaching your ability to help other writers? That's exactly it, Chuck, opening that gate and actually realizing at some point that there is no gate, that the gate is illusory, right. that the mind, the conditioned mind and all the things we've been told create that gate. And there's a way to move through that conditioning to a really wide landscape of, of meeting what you want to put on the page and moving it to publication. So the mindset, instead of something that opens and closes, you're saying, not only does it not open and close, develop the mindset that it doesn't exist. Yeah, that you actually have been sold a story of this hmm. gate. Right. And that in fact, the story is false. And you have inside you absolutely everything you need to be one of those writers who have a book on the shelf. And we have stories inside us from the time we're born. We've been, we've had them since time immemorial, since we made stories of the pictures that we saw of the stars in the sky. 
and we're still doing it. We're born with it. And that's what we forget. We think we have to lean into somebody else in order to make this happen. Right. Your writing career, did you know you always wanted to be a writer or did you fall into this? Chuck, writing was one of those things that I did kind of under the covers at night. It wasn't, it wasn't an aspiration in terms of a career. And in fact, I saw it as being a very lonely enterprise. My um, grandfather was the world affairs writer for the Herald Tribune. Mm. And when I went into his office, it was sort of like cigarette smoke and kind of dusty sunlight. And it just felt very almost lonely. Hmm. And so I wanted to be anything else, but I had an astrology reading of all things when I was <laughs> 24. And she said, you have the finger of God in your chart and it's all about writing. And she was really prophetic in that moment. Oh my goodness. That is a really interesting transition point to tell a 24 year old that this thing that you otherwise, as I mentioned in the opening, isolation, smoky rooms, the fear, like, oh my God, this is the life of a writer. I don't know. I like sunlight. <laughs> um, what did you set out to do before you actually started writing your novels then? Well, I was in international education and actually dance for a long time before I became a writer. So dance was sort of the, you know, the artistic outlet. And then I was working for the School for International Training, facilitating programs in uh, West Africa and East Africa. And I, you know, went to full, the Fulbright in Southeast Asia. And it was really about world traveling and bridging you know, bridging gaps culturally and that sort of thing. Were you journaling along the way such that you were laying down whether you knew it or not, what was ultimately going to happen to you? I was, I was always writing and I was always kind of finding meaning through the page and finding out who I was by what I wrote. So it was almost like I would experience, you know, all these incredible world travels, but I really didn't know what they meant to me until, you know, that night when I got into my journal and I would sort of write about it. And, and the writing became a primary relationship, Chuck. Hmm. It was a companion really on that road and a way to feel comforted and at home huh. and, it was so precious that I wasn't even sure that I wanted to go public with it because that of that feeling of maybe getting robbed or stolen of that intimacy that I had with the page. Wow. So you value, this is an interesting approach to writing because I know some writers who find peace in the journaling, it's not for anyone else's use, but mine. And that is the place where people go to to find peace, harmony, relaxation, and comfort. Yet there must have been a point, and this is what I want to really highlight to aspiring writers who may be going through the same thing. At some point, you broke that code. You cracked it, and you said, no, uh, I'm going to bring it. And you brought it to Scribner, and you brought it to many others. What happened that changed that mind? Well, I think writing at first was that companion and that comfort. And then I started to get very interested in craft, not because I wanted to take the story anywhere necessarily, 
but I just fell in love with the idea that there was such a thing that you could marry craft with story and with the imaginal sort of visions in your mind, and you could create something that was almost scientific in form or mathematical, like craft is so fascinating in how it alchemizes a story. It takes something that's kind of all over the place and it gives it banks for this river. And so I became very obsessed with the study of craft and the research of what makes great dialogue, what makes a great book, what is structure or architecture in terms of the novel. And then I really just wrote to work that out to see if I could do it. It was almost like a kid who takes apart a radio to figure out how it works. I didn't really, Chuck, feel like I was going to be a novelist, even while I took that year off, you know, to, to see if I could do it. It was kind of a dalliance, you know, it was almost like I got hoodwinked by the God of writing <laughs> to do this, you know, to, to, to do this dance with it, that, right. that wound up being a life changer. It was, it was completely the before and after of my life, you know, when that book, and then those books um, got sold and got sold so well. Right. Indeed. Yet, what was, what were you feeling like at the transition point where this is going to go from the level of intimacy and in private to now public and its vast array of anybody anywhere on the world can read what it is you were laying down? Was there a conflict or was it just a, a smooth transition? It was terrifying. Yeah. It I was wonder. really terrifying. How so? Well, because I had so much intimacy with the craft and the stories to expose it really felt like going in front of a firing squad because inside that place where I was creating the work, it was very cozy and fun and exploratory. I mean, it was just an adventure. And safe. And safe, super yeah. safe, right. exactly. And it was really the most fun I'd ever had. So then the book sold and almost right away, I want to say I was ecstatic and, and I was for maybe like 10 minutes. And right. then I went into a pretty deep depression hmm. and that wound became gateless. It, it became the reason that I wanted to help other writers hmm. because I realized that we need a hand to hold through these very tender parts of the creative process particularly I think when we go public, because at some point we do want to do something with the work. We want it to be a success. We want people to read it. We want to win awards. Maybe we want to get option for film, right. but first of all, how, you know, how do we do that? And second of all, whose hand do we hold through that wild terrain? Because there are going to be critics. There are going to be people who say no, and they don't say no very gently. And you can feel like you're getting your clothes torn off and you're just standing there naked, getting, you know, rotten fruit thrown at you and you have no insulation and nobody to turn to. So, you know, I didn't have that, that bad an experience, Chuck. It was very delicious in terms of what happened for me um, on the publishing road, but I could feel what it would have felt like 
if I had gotten bad reviews or been ignored or it's, it could be brutal. Well, I, I think there, there is an interesting dichotomy as you described the intimacy and the safe zone that, that you don't necessarily think of as a measure of achievement because in writing, particularly in book publishing, everything seems to have a metric. You are on the top 10 New York Times bestseller list. You sold X number of books that people want to hear. And I'd imagine even in your optioning for film, one of the questions is, you know, how'd the book do? And it didn't matter. Nobody asked you, what was it like to be intimate in your relationship to the book? How many did you sell? Okay. <laughs> so I would imagine your transformation was almost either an acceptance or a letting go that this thing that I'm doing in the intimacy of writing is something so colossally, colossally on the other side of this gate it must have taken you time to come to terms with that because you wrote another one. Yeah, exactly. I wrote another one and I really, that was before the first book went public because I got a two book deal, right? So I sold the first and they said, we want to, we want the second, even though it wasn't written yet. So I hadn't experienced yet what it was like to have a book in the world. And then I wrote the second book and I still had that incredible symphony inside myself and that synergy with the work and that feeling of, I mean, it's hard to explain, but when a book comes together there is really nothing like it. It feels like divine ecstasy. And you probably know that from being a writer. It's there's something magical that happens between the human, you know, and the word that is almost ineffable, you know, to try to explain. And, and that's really what I wanted to recreate because once I went public, it was hard, Chuck, to find my way back. Right. to that magic. Right. It was like, yes, it was lovely, you know, to be out in the world and to go on book tour. But I kept longing for and having nostalgia for the creative process. And when I was inside it and that intimacy and that ecstasy, and I wanted to share it, you know, I wanted, I mean, I remember when I first found my way back to it, it was because I gathered other writers and I said, let's do a writing salon and let's create together and let's read aloud and let's not tell each other what we don't like or what needs fixing or any opinion. Let's just tell each other what we love and what has energy and what has power in the work because that really will generate the best work, right? It will generate more work. It's it's just really against the grain to start to tell somebody what's not working. I mean, they might need craft, right? But they don't need opinion. And that really returned me to the magic, gathering the other writers and and starting to to read aloud and work like that. I remembered again who I was, you know, as a creative. Well, it's an interesting reconciliation that you went from the intimacy and the closeness of this thing that you value to now, you're now in achievement because you're now, and you had a commitment to your publisher who has an expectation. I don't, maybe they cared about your intimacy. Maybe they didn't, but they've got another metric and they need to sell those books. If you could tell that 
person back then, if you had the opportunity to speak to yourself throughout that time where you were now transforming from this almost closed gate to opening your own gate, would you have, would you have told yourself something different? Yes. I mean, I didn't know back then when I got in the wilderness of showcasing and success mm -hmm. that I would be returning. I just thought, oh my gosh, what have I done to this precious place that I had inside that was my ecstasy? Right. And now I would say to her, I mean, look, you're going to create this <laughs> incredible place for writers and for yourself, and you're going to be able to return to the magic of, of what was, and you're going to be able to hold in the other hand success. Like the two are not mutually exclusive, right. but you do indeed need to have both in order to feel like you've accomplished what you want to accomplish because success without that magic and that self-intimacy and that ecstasy with the creative process is just very hollow. And, and alternately, I would say for many, many people, having just the ecstasy and just the bliss of creation without actually kind of moving it to the next level can start to feel like a kid in a candy shop without a dime. It's like, okay, I'm having fun, but I really want something to happen. And so, you know, it wasn't just gathering writers. It was actually giving the writers the tools to make it happen. And then saying, look, Gateless is your home. Right. Even when you go out there and you're on Good Morning America and you're having a ton of success in the media with your book or whatever, here you can come back to your family and we're always going to hold the magic for you. And that is what that girl needed. You know, that girl that was that, me. That's a great point because what you're describing it, this is not a zero sum game. This is not, if I lose the intimacy, I now all of a sudden have sold out and I become a popular commercially successful artist. Not that at all. So that leads us to the transition of while you continued to write, you decided that you were going to go to work in the service of others through this concept of gateless and this writing academy. Tell us about that, the origins, because you've, you've already explained the reasoning behind it. <laughs> Help people to recognize the intimacy and the outwardness of success. They can live together, but you decided to form something that probably either there's a lot of writing coaches you must have had a different idea. Help us understand what you did and why you did it. Well, I think, Chuck, when we put the tools before the ecstasy, there's a problem. And mm -hmm. what happened with me was that I had stumbled very early on Zen Buddhism, and I had for a long time and had gone to Sri Lanka to do my Fulbright mm -hmm. and had been meditating in hermitages and temples for years. And the place that I went to when I meditated felt very similar to the place that I was in when I was really flowing with the work, the good work, you know, the work that finally went out into the world. Mm -hmm. And when I was in graduate school at Bennington, I started to 
do research on the creative process. And what I found was that the, the literary masters, you know, I mean, Tennessee Williams and Faulkner and, um, you know, some of the greats, Toni Morrison, Joy Williams, when they spoke about the creative process, Chuck, they were really speaking about the sacred. Hmm. I mean, they used words like stillness. Um, Jane Ann Phillips said, you know, when I go there, there are no gates. I mean, they were really talking about this place that goes beyond the conditioned mind. And then I thought, well, what is the mind doing during creative process then? And just around this time, creative neuroscience hit this really interesting curve where people at Stanford and Harvard and the National Institute of health, we're starting to hook creatives up like masters of the creative process up to these brain scans. And it was sort of serendipitous to my work at, at Bennington for my, my thesis. And what they were finding was that the regions of the brain that are responsible for criticism and judgment, not tools and not, not things like resources, but, but just opinion and, and judgment were completely still they were not being accessed in the act of creation. And it was the same exact sort of brain scan as the Zen monks when they were put up to brain scans. Hmm. So that's sort of what led me to think, okay, so this is something that's happening in the brain. Wow. And what if that mastery could be recreated? Like what if when a writer's in front of me, if I can still that those parts of their mind that are responsible for, you know, criticism and judgment and opinion, they could actually start creating great master mastery. They could, they could create great work. And that first year that I worked in that way, every writer I worked with published their book and it was a very quick way of doing it. It was also very joyful and they were self-actualizing out of these deep conditioned beliefs that they had been inside of just by this process. Yeah. What you're describing, this is interesting. And I remember, even though my book is not a novel, my book was a very tactical thing about what it is I did. I remember the joy that I felt when I felt it was finished because it was finished when there was nothing left to take away. Because you and I'd imagine part of your process is you got a lot to say, you say it, but you can't put it all out there. But there is a certain, and I don't want to say closure. I, I never felt closure, but what I felt was I th I think that this this is it. But there was a clarity of mind. The reason I say that, what you're describing, Suzanne, is going back to that ancient tug of war that the longest journey that any of us humans take is the 18 inches that separates our hearts from our minds. And in this world in particular, we're so science and metric oriented, we sometimes lose the sense of heart. But what you're describing and what the science is validating, it's not the mind, it's how we feel in the process. And yet you need the mind to be a good writer in order to understand how to write it. Am, 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 I, am, I, am I on the right path here about how it makes how you work to make these writers feel yes it is and it's maybe a little even more clinical than that mm -hmm. which is being able to trip the relaxation response 
allowing them to know they're in a safe, risk-free place, giving them tools and resources to make the dream happen. Because part of it is we believe that criticism and judgment create great work. Hmm. Great work is not made through criticism and judgment. In fact, what happens Hmm. when we're criticized or judged is that we go into fight or flight. And when we're in fight or flight, the imaginal shuts down, memory shuts down, everything we need to create great work is gone. So I want to keep writers out of fight or flight, keep them out of other people's opinions, other people's saying, I I can fix this, or I don't know why you're doing it this way, and really allow them to understand that they're going to have every resource and tool they need to make their dream happen. And also the foundation of what they have inside them and the fact that they want, they have an intention of writing the book is enough. It's enough to create mastery. There's a difference here. You're not describing necessarily how to teach someone to write. You're describing how to become a writer. And I think, you know, we, you and I come from very educationally sound backgrounds where education mattered. And I teach in an institution that I'm so proud, yet it's very much the model is cram, exam, and tell us everything you did wrong. But no, rarely does one get the prescription of the things you need to do right. It's just fix this. But your point is, no, that's not that at all. You have a different approach. What a wonderful thing. Describe to us then. Give us one example of a writer that came to you and what you work through to help them arrive at this wonderful place. Well, let's talk about Bob Litwin because we both know <laughs> I was Bob hoping Litwin. You would, because it is of all the shows that I have done, Bob, if you're listening, your book has had an impact on me beyond my wildest dreams. And Suzanne was a partner in the creation of this wonderful body of work. So I am grateful not just to you, but to Suzanne. Let's describe that one because I love what happened here. Well, Bob Litwin, as you know, is number one in the world, has been number one in the world as a tennis player in his age range. And he had come to me because he was in a place of knowing that he had a book inside him and not having any idea how to conceptualize it, articulate it, get it down. You know, he had, he's an incredible coach. I mean, he works, you know, on Wall Street. He's really, I think, changed the face of Wall Street in terms of what he's doing with, you know, these traders who need to change the story. And, you know, I'm sure in terms fiscally or whatever, financially, he's probably like a wizard. But at any rate, he had this incredible book that could help anybody in or out of the sports world or the financial world. And I could tell just by talking to him that he's a powerhouse and uh, brilliant. But when he came, he had a lot of beliefs around writing, even this magnificent, brilliant man. And some of them were like, I don't know if I really, you know, finish things. And I'm not, I'm, I, you know, I like to be doing, I don't like to be sitting there and writing and, you know, all, all these kind of things that a lot of us say and feel. And I said, all of that can be true and you can have an amazing book. We're going to work with the flow of who you are because who you are is so incredible. 
And he brought, I don't know, Chuck, I mean, like huge boxes sort of, of, of like papers, you know, just notes and everything. And I went through that and he said, do you want me to organize them or write them? I was like, no, just give me the boxes. And, um, I saw the book, the pattern of that book, many books really in, in those boxes. And we worked together to really figure out what was the distillation in terms of the power of what he wanted to share with the world so that he could move a crowd to a place of really incredible transformation, which I think the best story of your life does, his book does. No question. But it was really around letting Bob be Bob. You know what I mean? Letting him have that quote unquote mess, allowing him to get on Skype and tell me this way that he was working with the, you know, with athletes, with people in the financial world, huge movers in the financial world. How had he created transformation? Letting him talk and letting him talk more until we really found those 33 chapters and exactly what tools were most powerful that he was working with. And that main concept of change your story, change your life. But I think Bob would have been, he's an iconoclast. He's a rebel. You know, he's so great because he isn't, he knows all about the self-actualization and he has taken, I mean, he's a, he's a devout follower of the best people in that arena but he doesn't follow anyone else's rules because he has his own way of working and unless i could meet him there and not put my own agenda on it completely in a way let suzanne go and become one with his vision and then just pass him the tools and the resources and the architecture to meet that vision there was no way that he would feel like really bright and excited about that book. And, and now he owns it. He loves it. I mean, so many people have read that book. It's been a bestseller. It's been all over the world in terms of what it's done for, for people. Oh, indeed. And I, I count myself as one of them. You know, one, one of the precepts in the book is the beginner's mind. And, you know, at my age and what I've been very proud to be able to accomplish it just hit me like a two by four, like, oh my God, everything that he's saying is so fresh and I get to rediscover my own beginner's mind. So thank you, Bob. But thank you, Suzanne, for playing a part of that. But I think the, 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 the part here, who taught you to do this? Or did it just happen? It, it happened because I wanted it myself. Right. It happened because I also don't want to follow someone's agenda, someone's rules. I don't think constriction helps anyone grow. But I do want to be clear, Chuck, that it's criticism and judgment and opinion that we're taking out. Right. We are not taking out education. We're not taking out resources or tools. Those are so important and they get passed down and passed down again from great writers and great teachers throughout the years, but it is allowing for my ego and my own idea about what this should be 
to go out the window and allow the writer really to tell me what they are through the page, through what they're saying. And once we, like I was working with Jen Barrett, who just wrote Think Like a Breadwinner. And she is really big in the wealth and women arena. And when she came, it was like her book had been defined in a way by the arena. And when I heard Jennifer speak, it was very clear that first session that she was, the vision of what she was creating was huge. And once I could show her that that vision was out there, I could kind of move myself to the future and see her as a real domain changer. So every time she came to me, I would think just a little bit bigger I would say like, I think you're actually breaking this bond. Or I think if we turn this story around and show them how huge they can be as breadwinners, you know, it was like, it was like meeting her with more, more of the vision bigger, because sometimes it's hard as a human to hold those huge visions about our own work. We need someone else to come along and say, look, this can be an enterprise. This can change this entire arena. You can breakneck speed, do this and be the person that people look back on and say, oh my God, without that book, I wouldn't be here right now. So it's also about like bigger brands. Bigger brands. Did you not think that big or did you help her to bring the bigness and the vastness to it? She's a huge thinker. She's a really big thinker. But I, I could see because of that way that I was outside of her arena, I could see, oh my God, this is, this is for the world. This is gigantic. And then she would, she would say, oh my God, thank you. Because we're, we're humble. If we're smart, we're humble. You know what I mean? We we may, may be confident, but we're not, we're not thinking that huge, but that's my role. I can think so big about your work because I'm outside the work. Well, I think I I can say probably for most writers, certainly for myself, there's a certain validation that comes with the process. A chapter at a time is this good. It's going to be better. How did you help it? And I would imagine if I were in in Gateless Writing Academy, I can can see myself in it and and getting that validation throughout gives me the confidence that I would suspect many people, it it may have eroded by the time they got to you because the negative self-talk to authors is as big as any profession I've ever seen. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes total sense. And I think the louder your critic is, the bigger the work is right. and the bigger impact it's going to have. Right. So if someone comes and they're, you know, have all these critical thoughts, that's a sign that like, wow, this they're, they're about to enter into territory that's completely new and huge. Time to channel it and open up that gate instead of behind it. Okay, cool. Um, let, let's, I, I hope there are many people listening who have a book inside of them or think they do. And if they do, perhaps if they're feeling they're proverbial gate is closed or maybe they just need a crack. How do we find you? You can find me at gatelesswriting.com. I'm always there. (laughs) I'm obsessed with with my work. Um, And, you know, really like the Gateless family is huge. I mean, it's all over the world now. We have over a hundred Gateless trained teachers and we have 
many, many alumni from the Gateless Academy, and they are the kindest writing community, I think, anywhere. And they have done incredible work. So you're in the midst of a crowd who's very kind and wants to hold your hand. And they're also publishing with, you know, the bastions of publishing and represented by the hugest agents and all of that. So it's kind of a nice, nice marriage. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I want to make reference to another guest we had on the show who you have worked with, Bruce Feiler. And he talked about in Life is in the Transitions between the ABCs of life and autonomy, belonging, and cause. And when I reviewed in prepping for this show, uh, all I thought about is writers looking for that autonomy, the belonging, the community that you build in Gateless, and then the cause. What you have done is you've created a cause that is so much bigger than even the hundred. So thank you for bringing your wonderful work to, to the world. Oh, Chuck, you're so sweet. And to say that, and you know, Bruce Feiler is actually a colleague. I, I didn't work with him on his books, mm -hmm. but he is one of those writers, I think, that does get into that gateless place when he writes and he is just breaking so many domains open and and really walking this iconoclastic trail and when we follow him I just feel like we go to these really cool new landscapes so thank you for bringing him up he's one of my favorite authors and and um yeah wonderful person and Chuck I just want to say you know your interviewing is so profound. I well, mean, in this world of sort of surface skaters, you really go very deeply. And I feel like it's so nurturing. It's such food, you know, oh, <laughs> for the starving. You. So thank well, you. Well, you make it easy. There's a synchronicity among the community that you are a part of. Bob Litwin is in there. Certainly Bruce is in there. I've, I've had the pleasure of having them on my show, but I've also had a lot of other authors on the show. And I think, Suzanne, there, there's either a secret handshake. I don't know exactly how to describe it. But for those of us, what you captured at the opening is that sense of intimacy. There is an interesting dichotomy here. The sense of intimacy we feel with this thing that we want to bring to the world and the terror and both burden and opportunity that comes with bringing it to the world because you opened up in, 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 in a video on your website that, that someone hated your book. Imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think the writing process, we all identify with each other at both the burdens and opportunities and ultimately the joy that comes when you know that writing does take a village. This is not something you can do in isolation. I would have made me nuts. And my editor, his name is Peter Giannopoulos, and I want to give him credit. Peter, if you're listening, thank you. You made me a better writer. Uh, I, I, he was a partner. To call him an editor is just not. That's diminishing what he actually did for me. And, and I think what you do, the ability to help others transform because you've lived that transformation. Maybe there are higher callings in the world, but I'm willing to put that one pretty much near the top. Now, Suzanne, just, just as calls to action, you state on your first, um, if you have a copy of your books, would you be so kind to hold any one of them up, whatever you have handy? I don't have them handy, Chuck. All right. <laughs> well, no problem. I, I, in fact, uh, I, I'm embarrassed to say I'd have to walk away from this to bring it, but I would do want to talk about 
um, The Gospel According to Gracie and The Summer Fletcher Grill Loved Me, which I read and I really adored. But I, I, what I want to leave here with Suzanne is the question I always ask my guests as people tune into this. It's a three-part question. What do you want the aspiring writers of the world to think, to feel, and to do with all of these things that you promote in gateless writing community? I would say very simply, keep writing and know that we are born storytellers and that you actually have everything you need to create the story that you want to create. And this idea that the enough is out there in terms of creating it is, that's the gate that is gateless. It, there's no such thing. And really allowing the self to nurture the self through that process rather than self-flagellating and creating a war inside the self about discipline. It's like, how can you radically nurture yourself through the joy of the creative process and leave self-criticism behind? So to all you aspiring writers who beat yourself up, I, I get it. We think we've all been there, but I think when we turn to Suzanne and the gateless concepts and to recognize the endless possibilities that comes what happen when you open up those gates, as we say, open the floodgates and let it all pour in. This is what we are aimed to do. I want to leave you with then you state in the website about optioning for films for either one of your novels. Is that something you can talk about? Yes, um, both were optioned for film. Um, the second Gospel According to Gracie was optioned by Anne Hathaway. Hmm. And the first was optioned by actually someone who's become a very good friend, who's a screenwriter, Will Akers, oh, yeah. and he's out of um, Nashville. So <laughs> the optioning process is really interesting, right? It's sort of like you have to untether yourself from outcome. <laughs> as Will let says, it, let it be. <laughs> yeah, as Will says, getting a film produced is like shooting a bullet through a marble hung from a tree. Uh, I mean, through a lifesaver hung from a tree a mile away. So it's really <laughs> <laughs> oh, nothing to it. <laughs> yeah, nothing to it. So yeah, so Whoa. I kind of like threw it out like a boomerang and For we'll nice. see. And I, I often get people writing about those books in terms of film just because of how their, you know, their architecture works on the screen. Yeah. So I expect that it will happen at one point or another, but I'm at work on, on a third book right now. And it's really where all my attention is, is going. <laughs> and is there a working title that we can bring you back on the show to promote? Um, it's a, it's the gateless writer. It's about, um, myth-making, personal myth-making and the writing process and sort of, you know, it looks into our ancient myths around like Persephone as the sort of critic story and Icarus as the story of the ego, you know, getting too big and, you know, sort of looking at the, the intersection between between those and it's really for people who are in the writing process and well, sort of lovers of the word. This is wonderful because it diversifies us from the novel to now what you really do for a living. You are writing about this thing that you do, and now you get to, we get to read about this thing you do to help us internalize and 
preferably become, hopefully, become better writers thanks to people like you, Suzanne. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you so much for what you do. Oh, thank you for, for coming on to A Climb to the Top. To our listeners, as always, thank you very much. If you're watching us on YouTube, we really appreciate the time. If you are listening to us on C-Suite, Amazon, Apple, Spotify, wherever you can find us, wherever you get your 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 podcast, thank you very much. You can always find me at chuckgarcia.com. Follow us on Instagram and all the other social media stuff. But the most important part is what a joy it is to have Suzanne, who goes to work every day in the service of someone else's success. This is what this community does. And when it comes to our sense of belonging, how joyous it is to bring in these wonderful contributors to other people's lives, including many of the names that we mentioned. And Suzanne, I am grateful to Bob Litwin for introducing us. Thank you, Bob. I can't be all the people you have introduced me to, but to bring Suzanne here to talk about particularly maybe, maybe the aspiring writer who's listening to us <laughs> could use your help but Suzanne most important continued best wishes for this wonderful success and this great work that you do I am grateful that Bob has brought you into my life and I thank you for your time and contribution to a climb to the top thank you so much Chuck this was an absolute joy and hello and welcome to all your listeners <laughs> indeed it was thank you very much we are signing out thank you for listening everyone see you next week This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.